Hello everybody, my name is Ray. Welcome to the Evangelical Dark Web. Today we're going to be discussing John Piper and his views on government and we're going to be talking about the compromise that exists here. One of the things that we're going to discuss is that John Piper attacks Uganda basically saying that they're not being biblical in their Uganda Forever laws. And we're going to be discussing that. John Piper has been a notorious opponent against Christian nationalism. This is the same John Piper that is woke. This is the same John Piper that wouldn't defend his wife from a rapist using lethal force. This is the same John Piper that basically said it's okay to vote Democrat in 2020. So this is John Piper we're talking about. Not exactly a model to follow when it comes to applying Christian faith on ethical issues. And I'm not a fan of John Piper. I've never read anything intelligent written by John Piper. Uh, he's basically known for Christian hedonism and being around a very long time, but I don't really consider him a good teacher. I just don't. So with that said, we're going to look at his views on government and we're going to see the, you know, the compromise that exists there. But first we'll let you know, Evangelical Dark Web is a Christian news gathering and commentary ministry. We have a Patreon like system at evangelicaldarkweb.org slash join. You can support us there. And you can also check out the Evangelical Dark Web newsletter, uh, and that's completely free, by the way. But the least you can do is like this video, also subscribe to the channel, and podcast if you are new. So let's dive into this long essay by John Piper, titled, My Kingdom is Not of This World, The Lordship of Christ and the Limits of Government. So... John Piper begins, we're going to read most of this, uh, I, I will have to summarize certain parts because, you know, there's going to be parts we're not going to read, but the thesis, he begins, of this essay is that Jesus Christ, the absolute supreme creator, sustainer, and ruler of the universe intends to accomplish his saving purposes in the world without reliance on the powers of civil government to teach, defend, or spread the Christian religion as such. Followers of Christian or of Christ should not use a sort of civil government to enact, enforce, or spread any idea or behavior as explicitly Christian as part of the Christian religion as such. Now, again, I don't think that's really biblical at all. I do think that the government can protect and use a sword to protect Christianity. I think that's a valid use of the sword of government to protect Christianity. So there's one area where he's explicitly wrong. And you also got to look at the, you know, history of European, you know, European spread of the gospel did involve using the sword of government to spread the gospel throughout Europe. We just got to acknowledge that that happened. You know, look, no, uh, you know, Roman history, for instance, does contain that. So we got to acknowledge that it wasn't just martyrdom that Christianized the Roman Empire. It wasn't just martyrdom that conquered the Roman Empire. It was also the use of the sword that did as well. So we got to just acknowledge Christian history, church history, uh, and not necessarily run from it. It is critical to understand what I mean by the phrase explicitly Christian and the Christian religion as such. The state may indeed teach, defend, and spread ideas and behaviors that Christians support and support explicitly for and support for explicitly Christian reasons, and that non-Christians may support for different reasons. But that is not the same as the state taking the role of the ad, of advocacy for the Christian faith as such. It's the latter, not the former, that the New Testament opposes. And I disagree with that entirely because the New Testament doesn't necessarily oppose uh, Christianity being an, an official state religion. It doesn't actually oppose that. Uh, you know, the state saying this is the religion of this people. Like the government has the authority to do that theoretically. And, you know, if we look at history, the government always has had a theory has a Theo. You know, every government's a theocracy of some kind. The question is, who's the Theo? We have a vast, you know, history that we can look to towards government saying we're a Christian nation. We have a vast history of saying, uh, of, you know, looking to that. Uh, John Piper is saying that he's against that. John Piper does lean Anabaptist, so this is not su super, you know, out of the ordinary to expect. 
He continues, the civil government may rightly pass laws that make the spread of the, God, of the Christian faith and other faiths easier. For example, laws protecting free speech and free assembly. That is not what the New Testament opposes. The New Testament opposes Christians looking to the state to teach, defend, or spread ideas or behaviors as explicitly Christian. The sword is not to be the agent of the Christian religion as such, that is, as a religion. And again, there's no there there with that argument. If Christianity says a certain behavior is a sin and every other religion disagrees, but that sin is, you know, tangible and obviously evil. So it's a sin that people can physically commit against one another or even publicly. Then the government has the right and perhaps even the duty to criminalize and wield the sword against that sin. Even if, say, Judaism or Islam support it. So that's not a good argument in and of itself because it rejects the purposes of government that is established in the Bible, specifically the New Testament, Romans 13. So that's a shallow argument that I think logically doesn't hold up. And the other thing is, when you're conflating the state with the church, the state is doesn't have the power to baptize. The state doesn't have the power to give or deny communion. The state doesn't have power over the ordinances or the physical fellowship or gathering. The state does have the power to teach what is good and what is evil because that's what their legal systems are based off of. Legal systems are moral statements. So the next uh, part he wants to clarify, this essay is not mainly about church-state relations. I am concerned with the Christian religion as such, not with any particular institutional manifestations. I say this partly as I know some will join me in rejecting the notion that notion of given of any given Christian Christian denomination being established as state church, but who still abdicate for a state's enforcement of the Christian religion, such as the Apostles' Creed in the U.S. Constitution, to turn Christian creeds into civil statutes, transforms them into legal codes enforceable by the sword. I will argue that this is contrary to the teachings of the New Testament. It is disobedience to the Lordship of Christ. And I don't think there's a New Testament, you know, way to contradict this. I do think that the New Testament doesn't support the idea that the government can make someone's heart regenerate. But the government can say, hey, we're a Christian nation and this is what we believe. That's perfectly within a good government's duty. I will argue that... It is precisely our supreme allegiance to the Lordship of Christ that obliges us not to use the God-given sword of civil government to threaten the punishment or withhold the freedoms of persons who do not confess Christ as Lord. There is no warrant in the New Testament for the church or the state to use such force against non-Christian beliefs or, out, or against outward expressions of such beliefs that are not crimes on other counts. So what other counts and by what standard would those other counts be criminal? Would a pride parade be criminal? And by what standard would a pride parade be criminal? Because we don't have a Muslim nation, it wouldn't be a Islamic standard. It wouldn't be a Jewish standard because Judaism, as it exists today, is very openly for homosexuality. It would have to be a Christian standard as we've basically eliminated all the other major belief systems. So, you know, what standard? And what, again, what defines a crime? I argue that a crime is defined by a tangible act of evil. Like, for instance, we cannot tangibly say this person's lusting and therefore they should be thrown in prison. I don't, there's not a tangible manifestation of lust in and of itself, of sinful desire of coveting even. That's one of the Ten Commandments. And that's not a criminal act. 
because it's not tangible enough to be a criminal act. However, when someone steals, commits theft, that is a tangible act. The government has the right and I would argue the duty to punish theft. We have seen in you know California that the government has rejected the duty to punish theft, to punish evil. And by what standard are they doing that? A rejection of God, a satanic standard they're doing that. So the government's going to have a standard of which it defines criminal activity. Is it God's standard or is it Satan's standard? Is it one of his demons' standards? Is it Muhammad's standard? Whose standard? The renunciation of the reliance of state powers to establish Christian, the Christian religion as such is not in the service of so-called secular neutrality, which does not exist. That's an interesting argument that uh, John Piper makes. It is in obedience to God's word and celebration of the Christ-exalting way he intends to rule the world without the weapons of the world until Christ's return. And again... There is a sense in which Christ reigns, but we also learn in Isaiah 9, 6 that the government is upon his shoulders. So, you know, Christ's kingdom, and this is going to be one of the major fallacies of John Piper, is not of this world, but it is in this world. It does have tangible manifestations of what happens when Christ is in this world, when Christians reach higher office, then what happens? What are Christians to do when they actually take power? Or what is a ruler supposed to do if he repents and believes in the gospel? What is he to do? Is he to rule like a pagan or is he to rule like a Christian? And what does that look like? It doesn't look like being an Anabaptist. This essay, he continues, is mainly about what Christians should not look to the government to do. It is not about what we should look to the government to do. So that that's is another essay which many have already written. If I were to write an essay on this on that issue, it might begin with 1 Timothy uh, 1 and 2 where he talks about Christians praying to about praying and giving thanks and to rulers. Uh, the principle here is that the government uses its civil authority to provide a society of peace and justice where Christians and others are free to live out their faith without physical resistance, this passage does not warrant the view that other religions may legitimately be oppressed by government force. The principle is peace and stability and justice, not that any one religion be supported or reinstated rather than another. Well, again, that's a uniquely post-World War II American view of government. That is not a historical Christian view of government. It was not out of line with the civil magistrate to say ban Islam from Christian from Christian nations. That's not out of line. Especially as Islam does represent a threat to the gospel. So, with that said, a government here's one of the arguments I'm going to make. The government should give partia Partial, partial treatment to Christianity because Christianity is the true religion. That's the argument that I would make. Now, what does that look like? You know, it could look at, like as simple as holidays. It could look like as, you know, a legal system. It could look like special freedoms. Religious tests for civil office, which Amer every state had at one point in this country's history. In fact, these laws are still on the books in many states, including the state of Maryland where I live. However, they're not enforced. But this is an American ideal, at least at the time of its founding. This idea has been lost as a result of post-World War II modernist thinking as it relates to the United States. The idea that America is just an idea, an experiment, and not a historic people with a unique heritage is a novel idea. So, and the other thing I want to point out with John Piper's argument is, what is justice? You know, applying God's righteous standard, that is justice. 
Christians as influencers. Next uh, subsection. Christians may serve in civil roles of authority may be guided by those roles by their own Christian faith and biblical understanding of what's good for society. This not, essay is not against Christians serving Christ through the role in government. It is against the government presuming its use of the sword and, and the explicit aim of advancing the spiritual rule of Christ. So if Christ's rule is not being advanced by Christians in government, then whose rule is? I just want to interrupt Piper right there and say it. You know, look at Mike Pence, for instance. We just did a video on him. But we can look at Mike Pence's entire history of governing, and his governance advanced Satan's agenda. It didn't advance Christ's agenda. When Mike Pence was governor of Florida, he, or, sorry, that's Ron DeSantis. When Mike Pence was governor of Indiana, he vetoed RIFRA legislation that would have protected Christians from persecution from rainbow jihad. When he was vice president of the United States, he was part of handing this country over to Branch Covidianism. In fact, he was all in on Anthony Fauci, despite the incompetence that he and many others, not incompetence, malfeasance, although Deborah Burks was probably incompetent, that was displayed on his task force. So Mike Pence is obviously the example of what not to do when Christians reach power. But he is exactly the type of man that John Piper is definitely uh, implying is what Christianity uh, would openly support. So if you're not advancing Christian rule, Christ rule, then you're probably advancing Satan's rule. There is no neutrality. That's why people either go to heaven or they go to hell. They don't go to some in-between place. They either serve their father in heaven or they serve their father the devil. Which one is it? They may gladly say publicly that which particular laws they support or oppose for Christian reasons, but that is not the same thing as saying that a law should be passed as an explicitly Christian act of government in support of the Christian religion as such. In other words, Christian influence shaping a society's conception of just social order is not the same as Christians using state power to establish policies or laws precisely because they are part of a Christian religion. Really? When I support Uganda, I do that because these laws are biblical and I'm a Christian. I would argue that his, this, is, this dichotomy that he creates is a false dichotomy. For example, Christians rightly oppose on biblical grounds laws defending the killing of unborn children. They rightly pursue, pursue because Christian convictions, laws protecting the lives of the unborn. And since immorality and illegality are not the same, they may also rightly debate and propose measures of illegality in, if any, should attach to the immorality of any number of perverse practices such as sodomy child pornography or amputation or installing of male or and female sex organs speaking biblical truth into public squares as christians is what G disciples of jesus do we declare the excellencies of god in his ways such advocacy for truth and righteousness is not what the new testament opposes it is against using the state to reward or punish acts because they are part of the Christian religion as such. Again, that doesn't comport with what he just said. What he just articulated are things that are evil because Christianity deems them to be evil. Christians may be involved in the political process from the top from top to bottom as an expression of allegiance to lordship of Christ as they seek to do good to everyone in the hopes that some might see their good deeds and glorify God on that day of visitation. But seeking to serve in government as a fruit of Christian faith is not the same as using the powers of civil government as an advocate of the Christian faith as such. Again, what give an example of what you're saying because again he's not talking about the government no one's talking about the government hosting church services no one's talking about the government giving out communion or practicing baptism that would be it you know an advocate of the christian faith at least as john piper might you know i, I imagine he would view it that as off limits but he's not defining his boundaries right now but he does later on we turn now to the exegetical reflections that support the preceding claim. Okay, let's just skip that. 
So first point that he makes, Christ's kingdom is not of this world. And this is a very midwit level argument because again, Christ's kingdom is not of this world, but it is most certainly in this world. It is most certainly a threat to the kingdom, the principalities and powers in this world. So this is not a good argument. It's an, it's, Again, a midwit argument. I conclude, he says, therefore, that the words of Jesus in John 18, 36 are a warning to all his followers to resist temptation to treat the sword of civil government as a Christian agent to advance his saving rule. And that's the uh, line about Jesus not summoning angels to his defense. So, not exactly the same. Because, again... Christian governments have existed. Christians have become rulers of physical nations on earth. We're asking, what does that look like? They're not, you know, doing convert or die. Okay. That's one thing. But what John Piper does eventually argue is that we shouldn't enforce a Christian morality Specifically, ones that are unpopular post-World War II America. That's what John Piper ultimately argues here. Number two, Christ's kingdom is invisible and spiritual in nature. And my argument against this point is that if that's true, and if that's completely true, I, I, I want to specify, that's true to an extent. But there are physical manifestations of Christ's kingdom in this world. It is not of this world, but it is in this world, and that it is in this world. There are also physical manifestations of Christ's kingdom in this world, whether they be physical signs that point to Christ's lordship on this planet, or whether it be the actions and fruit of his followers in this world. When his followers set up Christian nations, that is one of the manifestations of Christ's rule and dominion in this world. So when Jesus says, my disciples are not taking up arms to free me, John Piper uses that to say the weapons of the state are not to be used or are not to be the Christian means by which the kingdom of God advances in this world. Now, again, that is specifically a verse talking about Jesus submitting himself to the crucifixion, to uh, suffering the penalty for our sins. When Jesus does come back, there will be some sort of a final battle. It might be anticlimactic because of how one-sided it will be. But nonetheless, Christ is coming back to inf you know complete his kingdom being in this world, to end the rebellion in this world. In the meantime, we are in a spiritual warfare, and that, I think that's what John Piper is kind of obtusely denying. We're in a spiritual warfare. We wrestle with principalities and powers. One such thing that we wrestle with are evil rulers that are influenced by demonic forces. Which kind of makes me want to talk about the whole UFO thing, but that's something for a different video. We are wrestling with spiritual forces, but these spiritual forces that we wrestle with manifest themselves in principalities and powers. They manifest themselves in people under demonic influence. Just like how the Holy Spirit uses us, Satan and his minions use a lot of other people. So there are ways in which uh, the weapons of the state are being used in a spiritual war. So the point number three that he makes is followers of Christ are sojourners and exiles on earth. And I don't necessarily think that's wholly complete. Because we also inherit the earth. The meek will inherit the earth. That's what Christ says. So this is not a fully complete understanding of our relationship to the world. We are not Gnostics who believe that the earth is evil and that you know everything fleshly is bad now we do have flesh and sinful desires that we wrestle with but that's not what i'm talking about i'm talking about physical reality being evil that is not what christians believe that is a gnostic belief and we shouldn't necessarily view ourselves as merely you know just 
merely passing through because again this physical life we have here has eternal consequence it has eternal reward even so uh and we also inherit the earth so we gotta remember that our citizenship is in heaven but it also is in the new earth the new heavens and the new earth so we gotta remember these things we need to have a complete picture of what it means so uh, this is a longer point that he makes, but he does conclude by saying, uh, until Christ comes, the vagaries and fragile existence of earth, earthly nations does not correspond to the indestructible kingdom of Christ and his people. They have no necessary connection. Earthly nations come and go. Christ's holy nation does not. It would be inconsistent with the radical distinction between the earth exile reality of Christ's people on one hand and the citizenship of any earthly government on the other hand, to think that the powers of that earthly government functioning as an explicitly Christian agent of Christ's transnational holy nation, this is true regardless of how many people or leaders in an earthly nation are Christian. Well, this is not a historically backed up point. We can look at the fall of the Eastern Roman Empire and we can see clearly that when the Muslims took over these swathes of, you know, say Egypt, which a Christian ruler uh, who was actually condemned, I believe, in the 7th or 8th uh, ecumenical council, he was condemned. I, I think it was a Cyril of Alexandria, I want to say. Um, he was condemned because he you know, handed Egypt over to the Muslims and that had eternal consequences. His, uh, treason, I would argue his treason in handing Egypt over to the Muslims had eternal consequences for the future generations of that nation. You know, when the Muslims took over the Holy land that had eternal consequences for the future generations of that land. So we can't act like that earthly nations come and go, but this has no connection to the eternal outcome of the people living in those earthly nations. This is, again, a very incomplete view and a very ahistorical view of church history. Point number four, and this is four of eight, so we're going to finishes soon enough. Christians wield spiritual weapons, not earthly ones. And I think my argument against point number two, two uh, is reiterated on this point because yes, we, you know, we walk in the flesh. We're not waging war according to the flesh for weapons of our warfare are not flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So one such, you know, weapon of our spiritual warfare is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is one of our most, this is our most powerful weapon. Other than the shield of faith, you could argue is equally as strong because of the necessity of a shield and the sheer uh, offensive potential that a shield has. But obviously the sword is probably the most powerful weapon we have. The sword of the spirit, the word of God. That is our most powerful weapon. Well, what is, does the sword say should be a crime? You know, what does the sword of the spirit say should be a crime? That's the type of question we should be asking. That's the type of question that uh, John Piper ultimately rejects because he has a, you know, Old Testament, New Testament distinction that he wants to make with regards to what the Bible pro uh, prescribes as a crime versus not a crime. So, I agree that we use spiritual weapons, uh, but and those are our primary weapons. How these manifest themselves, it means you know preaching the gospel because that's what ultimately saves people. That's what ultimately saves people. But again, we also do good works. So when we are doing good works. Sometimes that does mean using fleshly means, using earthly means to accomplish good works because of that, that these good works are informed by our biblical worldview, by our uh, Holy Spirit indwelled bodies. So this points a truism, 
that no Christian's really going to argue. And this is about spread, you know, we can't convert or die people. This isn't, you know, Kingdom uh, Crusader Kings 3. You can't just force someone to convert. And if they don't convert, burn them at the stake. You can't, you know, that's not what the Bible says to do. But the Bible does state that the government should punish good and reward evil. The government cannot, does not have the keys to the kingdom, which the church does. The government can enforce laws that correspond to biblical values. The government can, in rewarding good, show partiality to Christianity above all other religions. These are Christian ideals. So number five, the kingdom was taken from nation from a nation and given to the church. Okay, and this is kind of about how... Uh, so the ultimate point that John Piper is making here is that laws in the Old Testament are now in, not no longer enforced by the state. But this is a very bad argument. So let's read, let's zoom in on this because this is where John Piper goes against Uganda. Because Uganda enforced biblical laws, laws that the United States also had on the books until 2003. And in many cases, still has on the books now, if you want to reference adultery laws, those are largely unenforced, but should be enforced and are enforced in some cases. A lot of states are getting rid of at-fault divorce, which is, you know, feminists were praising that. And we talked about that in, uh, on our Steven Crowder divorce video. We talked about uh, a feminist praising the, you know, a feminist writer for, I believe, Christian, Christian Post. Uh, supporting no-fault divorce, using Christianity to do so, that's not biblical whatsoever. Uh, so, so he cites three uh, things. He cites uh, three statutes. He talks about uh, sexual immorality, so homosexuality and uh, adultery. So we're going to talk about zooming in on these. The coming of Christ brought about a change in the way the visible people of God are constituted in this world. No longer are God's visible people the political and ethnic people of Israel. Instead, God's special saving action was taken away from Israel as a group, uh, as a group and focused on the church. This mean this is the meaning of Matthew twenty three or twenty one forty three. Jesus interprets the parables of the vineyard as a parable of Israel's fruitlessness and the consequent loss of the save, of the saving rule of God. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing its fruits. This nation is the Church of Jesus Christ, as Rudy Robert Gundry puts it. The Church is called a nation because it will replace the nation of Israel with disciples from all nations blended together into a new people of God. Hence, Peter calls the church a holy nation in 1 Peter 2.9. The changes in the kingdom moving from Israel to the church are many. The church is made up of many nations, not one. All believers are priests. The sacrificial system ends with the perfect and final sin-bearing sacrifice of Christ. The food laws give way to Christian feed, uh, to freedom. And yeah, yeah, Mark 7 does end the food laws of the Old Testament. These are, this is a change because the law has been fulfilled. Circumcision is no longer required as the mark of belong to the people of God. And that's become a very testy issue right here. So all that's good, right? But wait, John Piper, he's a Trojan horse argument maker. John Piper will use Christian truisms, that was a truism, to then beachhead an unbiblical argument. So here's where he goes from there. And the theocratic warrant for the civil punishment and execute of execution for unrepentant idolaters, adulterers, and homosexuals, for example, is replaced with excommunication from the church. The hoped-for aim of excommunications of repentance and restoration, and therefore does not look like the look to the state to complete complete capital punishment for the sake of the church. Here are texts showing the legitimacy of uh, capital punishment for idolaters, adulterers, and active homosexuals in the old theocratic regime of Israel. Joash, who stood 
who Joash said to all who stood against him, who will, who will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by mourning. If a man commits adultery with his wife, so he's referencing Judges uh, 6.1. Uh, see also Leviticus 24.16 and Deuteronomy 17.2-5. And then if a man commits adultery with one wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Leviticus 20.10. And then Leviticus 20.13. If a man lies with a man, the male, as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Uh, under the spiritual reign of Christ in the New Testament, idolatry is made more serious, not by greater punishment, but by being identified with the condition of the heart expressed in sin, like sins like covetousness. Uh, put to death, therefore, uh, what is earthly to you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. But again... Idolatry, you know, it's interesting that, you know, command, Ten Commandments, the first two deal explicitly with idolatry, and so does the tenth one. That doesn't mean that the first two commandments don't exist anymore. That doesn't mean that if someone erects a high place, an asteroid pole in the public square, that the government doesn't have the right to burn that thing. Or if someone creates the Georgia Guidestones, the government doesn't have the right to tear those things down. If you know on government property, which is where those things were, so there is a difference here, and we got to remember that every king, every good king in the Old Testament, is identified with them punishing idolatry and sometimes also homosexuality, when that was an issue. So he continues: the seriousness of adultery is intensified in being identified with the lust of the heart. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now again, there was an Old Testament understanding that God judges the heart. This doesn't erase the fact that adultery shouldn't be a crime. And then he says homosexual practice was classed with these sins, with the sins of unrighteousness, and all three were seen as serious enough to keep one out of the kingdom of God. He cites 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. Under the new covenant reign of Christ, the way people of God deal with the sin of idolatry, adultery, and homosexual behavior is to first seek repentance. Uh, when this happens, there is restoration. We see this with gracious statements, such were some of you. But if idolaters, adulterers, and active homosexuals are unrepentant, the path forward is the church is church discipline and if necessary to excommunication now this is a very bad argument that he is making uh, because again let's look at first Corinthians 6 9 through 11 do not be deceived I, I'm skipping ahead a little bit neither the sexually immoral the uh, nor idolaters nor adulterers no nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers, a couple of other of those were crimes. Thieves, that's a crime. Swindlers, that's a crime. So he's saying that he's not making this argument about thievery. He's not making this argument about scams. Why not? What's the double standard here, John Piper? Excommunication had it had in view either repentance leading to salvation and if possible restoration or Christ's capital punishment on the last day. But again, thievery didn't also? This is not a good argument. The fact that murderers, for example, are rightly punished by the state in this present age does not contradict the point here. Yes, it does. Um, because punishing murderers, the state is not functioning as an explicitly Christian agent of the Christian faith. This action of the state is not an aspect of Christ's rule over his, over his church. When the state punishes a murderer, it should not do so in the explicit advancement of, the, of religious faith, Christian or otherwise. Okay, but is it righteous? Yes. Is, are the Ugandan laws righteous? Yes. Therefore, what does it matter if they're if the they are explicitly advancing the the religious a religious faith or not? And 
if is it righteous or not? That's the question we should be asking. Is it good? Is it righteous? Is it just? That's the question we should ask be asking with government policy. Jesus did not teach that the kingdom was taken from Israel and given to the civil government of each nation. He said it was taken from Israel and given to the church. And in the process, he put the new, uh, in place a new way that God now rules his people until the second coming of Christ. So there can be no straight line drawn from the Old Testament laws and punishment to the present day. And the state is not a continue in continuity with Israel. And the people of Christ, the new holy nation, is a differently constituted Israel. So a couple things to point out here. Romans 1 says such those who do such things you know, deserve death. That is what Romans 1 says. Paul identifies the sins listed in Romans 1 as, as deserving of death. Second, Christ's nation is the people he saves. It's not necessarily the physical, visible church. So what happens when the people he saves are in positions of government? They act biblically. John Piper has failed to make an argument that punishing adultery, for instance, is an unbiblical law. He's failed to make that argument. Number six, a Christian state obscures the true nature of Christianity. Christ hate, hates hypocrisy. He, he pronounces woes on those who think outward conformity of religious tradition with inward, without the inward reality of faith is a Christian aim. It misses the point of to observe the hip, that hypocritical law-abiding neighborhoods are perfectly preferable to deadly anarchy. Christians don't operate within these options. We, per, we live and die to proclaim first the clean inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean, put away all hypocrisy. It is good when government restrains the harm that humans do to other humans, but that is not the Christian message, nor is it the strategy of advancing the Christian faith. Not necessarily. It Again, things we do, God uses. God judges. The, you know, let's talk about the uh, life issue for a second. Is there any guarantee in Scripture that aborted babies go to heaven? I believe the answer is no. The age of accountability thing is a complete myth that's not in the Bible whatsoever. Uh, I do think there is some evidence that children of believers have reason, you know, believers whose children die at a young age have reason to believe that they will see their children again in heaven. And I think that even goes before they are saved. Like if someone aborted their child and then comes to Christ, I think they might have a reason to see their child in heaven. We see that in the story of David and Bathsheba. However, if we criminalize uh, infanticide, that will have eternal consequences. That is a way of advancing the gospel because now we have more people to preach the gospel to. Now these people won't be dead before they ever hear the gospel. This is a physical law that advances the gospel in some way, shape, or form. Every law, every good law, should have some way of advancing the gospel in some way, shape, or form. Teaching someone what sin is. That's one of the functions of the law of God. Restraining evil. That's one of the functions of the law of God. That's a good thing that does help advance the gospel. When the government says, as it is currently doing, that evil is good, that has hindered the advancement of the gospel. Secondly, I want to point out that Christ hates hypocrisy. Yes, start with the church. Start with the ecclesiastical authorities like John Piper, for instance, and talk about their hypocrisy first. There is far more hypocrisy. You know, take the log out of your own eye, John Piper. I do evangelical dark web. This is one aspect of calling out hypocrisy in the church. I also do, you know, address public issues publicly, public policy issues. So, you know, address your own self first. 
Seven, uh, the sort of government is not for establishing true religion. I wholly disagree with this argument because here's the argument. Here's a straw man that he makes. He, he gives a syllogism uh, and he says that this is invalid. Premise one, civil government is to reward good and punish the bad. Romans 13, right? Premise two, explicit expressions of Christian faith are good and explicit expressions of being non-Christian are bad. Conclusion, therefore, the civil government should take up its Christian duty for Christ's sake and reward, the de- reward deeds because they express Christianity and punish deeds because they do not. I, I think that's a poorly worded conclusion. I think, conclusion, the government should show partiality to the Christian religion as it is true is the more natural conclusion against all other religions. He says this is not a valid syllogism. The conclusion does not follow from the premises and that's not really true i think it's a poorly worded conclusion but that conclusion does follow from the premises it is not clear that good and evil in premise one are the same as good and evil in premise two nor is it clear that the rewards and punishments should be bestowed as acts of christian advocacy again there's nothing in premise one about advocacy we have seen in, six, in the previous six sections, that there are numerous reasons why Christians should not infer from Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 that governments are ordained by God to be an arm of Christianity to establish God's kingdom with that sword. Well, let's talk about sphere sovereignty for a second. We have the self. If You know, you got self-control. That's a fruit of the spirit. That's talking about the sphere of self-government. Then we have the family. Then we have the church. Then we have the state, the civil magistrate. Let's talk about the family for a second. Is the family, the father, the head of the household, not an instrument of Christian advocacy of the gospel advancing? Or is only the ecclesiastical authority that? So if the father of a household can be a tool for the advancement of Christianity, why not also... The government. Answer me that, John Piper. And the way that they do that is to stay in their lane, by the way. So the government's not handing out crackers and uh, wine for communion. The government's not doing that. That's not what I advocate at all. So... The term good works, Romans 13, is regularly a reference to practical acts of mercy for those needs, which rulers would approve as the same kind of practical helpfulness unbelievers are capable of and admire. Now, disagree with that. They may be regularly uh, compared with that, but let's look at the Old Testament. Every good king in the Old Testament is identified with their tackling of idolatry in the public square. And occasionally also homosexuality. Just saying. Uh, so I wanted to point that. And then eight re- eighth reason, Christ himself will punish blasphemy and idolatry in the last day. Yes, this is true. Doesn't have anything to do with whether earthly crimes should also be punished as well. Christ will punish murderers in the last day. Doesn't mean we shouldn't punish murder here on earth. Bad argument by John Piper. Again, very midwit. So, that is uh, the conclusion. I'll, I'll read his final sentence. This, or, this new administration of God's reign would not pursue the manifestations of God's wisdom by using earthly powers of civil government as Christian enforcement of biblical faith. Rulers and authorities in heaven and on earth would be confronted with spiritual power of Christ's kingdom, but... Faithful subjects of Christ's kingdom would not look to the powers of civil government to give explicit Christian defense of or support to the Christian faith as such. Again, no, he has not proven that at all. This commitment to renounce reliance on state advocacy for the Christian faith is not in the service of so-called secular neutrality. It is in obedience to God's word and in celebration of Christ's exalting way of the Christ-exalting way he, he intends to rule the world without the weapons of the world, but for the glory of his name. Now again, the father of the household is charged with catechizing and 
preaching the gospel to his household. So that is the argument that John Piper is not making here. He's not addressing that. So why not also can the government also in its own capacity, not in the church's capacity, not in the father of the home's capacity, also be an advocate, say, by teaching what is right and wrong, by aligning its civil law with the law of God. That is a way that the government can advance the gospel in a way, but not interfere with the church's duties. The government could say Christ is Lord. It can embed that in its constitution like the nation of Zambia does. That is a way the government can advance the gospel in its own capacity without using the weapons of this world or uh, stepping on the toes of the church. There are ways that this can be done, and if you understand sphere sovereignty, you can do these ways. So that's all I got to say about that for now. My name's Ray. This is the Evangelical Dark Web. We had a long one today. Have a blessed day, and we will catch you on the next one. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.